My name's Pete, and uh, one of the pastors here. So glad that you're with us this morning. And uh, we're going to continue on in the series we started last week, entitled The City, and talking about what it means to be faithful followers of Jesus here in this, uh, in this place. So we'll go to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. And we're going to start um, kind of where we left off last week, in the same two passages and uh, take, take it a step further. Um, if you've been around Antioch for any length of time, you know that we have four core commitments that guide us uh, in terms of what we believe and, and ultimately how we live as a community. And so those four commitments are uh, Christ-centered, authentic spirituality, intentional community, and missional living. And so this series for these three weeks, um, as we talk about the city, kind of falls under the category of missional living, um, sort of helping us understand a little bit more when we talk about living missionally. What are we talking about? And uh, what might that look like for us to live it out? And so we call uh, those four commitments rather than values. Lots of organizations have their core values, which is kind of just a vague and nebulous thing. It's sort of like these are the things that are important to us on paper. But when we talk about these things, we're talking about commitments, things that we're actually uh, committed to, to being uh, loyal to and faithful and, and growthful towards in terms of how we're going to live together as a, as a church. And so missional living um, is basically the idea that as followers of Jesus, we have the identity of those who are sent by God to live as his people, uh, to embody his presence in the world, that there is a mission that God is on in the world to restore all things back to himself, and we live with hope that one day Jesus will return and he'll make everything new again. Um, and we live as citizens of that kingdom, people in waiting, anticipating the day where Christ returns and makes it all new. And so we live as citizens of that world, that city, the new heavens and the new earth. And we also live as citizens of Bend, Oregon. And we're talking about what does it mean to live as citizens of both cities, of the new city, the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, and this city here and now. And how do we remain faithful to Christ in a, in a world that increasingly doesn't value what we value, believe what we believe, or live the way we live? And so when we talk about missional living, it's obviously connected to the idea of mission or missions. And traditionally in the church, at least the churches a lot of us grew up in, when we talked about mission, we were talking about something that happened on the other side of the ocean, Right? Uh, that you would go on a mission trip or you would support missionaries who were overseas. Now, there's absolutely a place for a global perspective on mission and, and paying attention to what God's doing around the world. But we are committed to the idea that mission doesn't only happen on the other side of the ocean, but it, it can happen here and now. And in fact, we are called to live as agents of God's mission here in this place, in our city and in our daily lives. And so when you say missional living, another way that putting that that may be a little bit clarifying is the idea of lifestyle mission. So maybe you've heard of lifestyle fitness, 
right, which isn't just going to the gym once a, once a day or once a week or whatever, but it's actually like throughout your daily life integrating opportunities for health and fitness, like you take the stairs or you park on the far end of the parking lot. I've heard of lifestyle fitness. I don't actually practice it, but I know that some people do, and maybe it's a familiar idea. And so when we say lifestyle mission, missional living, it's the idea that we don't commute to mission. It's not just something we do when we get on a plane or a bus to Mexico, but actually we are trying to integrate the mission of God and orient our lives around the mission of God on a daily basis. And thinking about how what we do for work and the neighborhood we live in and the circles of people that we are connected to, how all of those are mission fields. All of those are contexts where we can practice the presence of God and live as citizens of both the kingdom of heaven and the city of Bend. And so that's kind of the conversation. So hopefully when you talk, when we hear us talk about missional living, uh, you'll understand a little bit more what that means. And so we'll go in John chapter 1. This is the way that uh, this gospel writer begins the, his biography of the life of Jesus. And it doesn't start in a manger. Uh, it doesn't start with wise men or anything like that. Um, John takes a theological take on the life and the meaning of, of Jesus' arrival in the world. John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Skip down to verse 9. The true light that gives light, true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh. And made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so, as we dive into this conversation about the city, about living missionally in Bend, Oregon, we're going to start by looking at Jesus. And start by looking at how he has come into our world. And as the gospel writer here tells us, Jesus was sent by the Father with a specific mission. And it's multifaceted. There's lots of parts in terms of asking why did Jesus come into the world. But one of the main reasons we're told in verse 14 is that Jesus was sent into our world to reveal to us the good news about who God is and what God's like. So the idea is that when we look at Jesus, John says that we get to see the glory of God. We get to see who God really is. 
And so in their world, and just like our world today, there's lots of different ideas and theories and theologies about if there's a God, and if so, what is that God like? And Jesus answers that question for us by showing up as God in the flesh. God becomes human. The word becomes flesh and makes his dwelling among us. Dwelling is the idea of setting up a tabernacle or a tent. He actually moves into our neighborhood. He becomes one of us so that when we look at him, we get to see the glory of God. We get to see who God really is. And John tells us when we see who God really is, we see a God full of grace and full of truth. That's the God that we have in Jesus. And it's this scandalous idea. For Christians, we're kind of used to thinking about Jesus as fully God, fully man, God who comes and becomes one of us. But that's a crazy idea, right? And for a lot of John's first readers, this was really hard to swallow. To a Jewish audience, they would have had a really hard time with the idea that God could actually reduce himself to human form. The theological term for what we're talking about is incarnation. Incarnation. So, carnation, carne, if you speak Spanish, is what? Meat. God becomes meat. It's kind of offensive, isn't it? God becomes flesh. And if you have an idea of God who's this transcendent, all-powerful, all-knowing creator and sustainer of the universe to say, yeah, he's translated himself into a piece of meat, that should be kind of hard to wrap your mind around. There's something crazy that John's talking about here. And even the fact that he would declare that by looking at Jesus those people around him got a glimpse of the glory of God. Like, that's an insane statement to make. If you know the story of God and his people, as it's told in the Bible, there's several places where earlier in the story, God's people asked to see his glory. Moses is one of them. He says, God, show me your glory in Exodus 32. And what does God say? He says, if I showed you, I'd have to kill you because nobody can see me and live to tell about it. And John goes, we've seen the glory of God. God has revealed himself to us in the person of Christ. We know who God is and what he's like. And so amongst all the other things that we could say about this passage or, or conclusions we could draw, central to it all is this, that the God of the universe in his very nature is like Jesus. We have a God who is Christ-like, which is super good news, isn't it? Because a lot of people have pictures of God that he's really angry, that he's really uh, removed or distant or uninvolved or uninterested in the world, that he's a God primarily who we should try to avoid because, because he's going to strike us down or something, right? And the picture that we have in the Bible of God is a God who looks like Jesus, which is great, because we love Jesus. Even people who aren't Christians like Jesus. And that's what God's like. Amen. So he shows up in our world. He makes his dwelling among us. He moves into our neighborhood, becomes one of us, so that when we look at him, we get to see who God really is. Okay. Now, let's go to the end of John's gospel. Chapter 20. 
You can read the in-between on your own time. We'll go to the end of the story. After Jesus commits his life to declaring the good news of God's kingdom and performing signs and miracles that point to that kingdom, he is perceived as a threat to the establishment. He's a threat to the, to the ruling order of the day because he shows up and proclaims that he is the king. And they already had a king, and they didn't want Jesus as their king. And so they end up sentencing him, putting him to death, and burying him. Now in John 20, we get to what happens in Jesus' biography after his death, which is notable already if you're, <laughs> if you're a history student, right? Most people's biographies end at the tombstone. Jesus has a few more chapters. So I hate to spoil the ending, but he doesn't stay dead, okay? Verse 19 of John chapter 20. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for the fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Which is just great because last they saw him, he was being put in the ground. His body had been destroyed. They watched him die by professional executioners. They watched his body die. They watched him be buried. And now they see him for the first time. He shows up and says, peace be with you, which is a Jewish way of saying, what's up? Right? Just kind of this casual, like, hey, how we doing? After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Okay, so we hit on this last week, but I want to make sure we really get it. John 1 begins with the story about Jesus, God the Son, being sent into our world to live among us, to reveal God to us, so that when we look at him, we get to see God. That's how and why, at least in part, Jesus was sent into our world. And then at the end of his ministry, the end of his life here on earth, immediately before uh, his ascension back to the right hand of the Father, he gathers his followers around him and says, as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. What's he doing? He's passing the baton. He's saying, I want you guys to pick up where I've left off. The mission that I've been entrusted with from God is now the mission that I'm sending you guys on. As the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. You get to run the next leg of this race. Keep doing it the way you've seen me do it. Keep living the way you've seen me living. Take the mission that guided and shaped my life and you go and run and fulfill that mission with your life as well. And so when we ask, how was Jesus sent into the world? The answer is in John 1, that he was sent incarnationally. That he puts flesh and bones on a God who is spirit. So Paul would later say that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. 
He came to reveal God to us, to live among us in such a way we could see God in him. And now he says, you, as my disciples, and ultimately he would say this to his whole church that would one day be formed, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. So part of what that would look like then is us owning this identity that we are sent people, that Jesus has a mission for us, that he is sending us into the world to continue the good thing that he started and embodying the very life of God so that the people around us, our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, would actually get to look at us and see Jesus. It's an amazing mission. Now here's what I would say. Lots of times when people talk about missional living or incarnational living, we use the language of going and being Jesus to people. Maybe you've heard that and we say it sometimes here at Antioch, that we would go and be Jesus to your neighbor or to the poor or whatever. And I get why people say that and what they mean when they say, let's go be Jesus. The problem with that is that there already is a Jesus and we're not him. Which is very good news if you've ever felt the weight of that burden. Oh, great, now I'm Jesus, <laughs> right? <laughs> like the, the Western calendar literally hinges on his life and death in the world, and now that's me. No, we're never told to be Jesus, but we are invited to be with him and to be like him and to bear his image in the world. It's a subtle distinction, but it's pretty huge. Jesus says, he doesn't say, go be me. He says, go and continue on the mission I've started. And what's even better is he doesn't say, so just try really hard to live my life or to practice my rhythms or to speak my words. He doesn't just say this is about imitation, but as he speaks to them in verse 22, he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit which is an amazing gift. See, the same Holy Spirit that empowered Jesus for the beautiful, brilliant life he lived has now been given to us. The reason Jesus was able to live the life he lived wasn't just because he was God in the flesh. It's because he was a human who was perfectly indwelt by the Spirit of God. I could go further with that, but all I'd say for now is Jesus doesn't play the God card very often. Most often what Jesus does, even the things that he does that we would categorize as supernatural, he does by the power of the Holy Spirit as a human. And now he says, receive my spirit. Receive the very life of God as a gift to dwell within you, to empower you to energize you for this mission. And so when Jesus gives the Holy Spirit to his followers, a lot of us have kind of weird associations or connotations when we talk about being spirit-filled or spirit-empowered. Maybe you've come from a church context where that's been done in a really weird way or something. When Jesus gives his Holy Spirit, it's not to give us warm fuzzies and make us have really awesome worship experiences. 
He gives us his Holy Spirit to empower us for his mission. To follow his life incarnationally. To be like him with those that he would have been with. That's why Jesus gives the Spirit. And it's brilliant, isn't it? If you think about the idea of what's happening there, it's actually the best possible plan. If you think, I don't know how many years ago, three, four years ago now, Steve Jobs died, right? And the question in the tech world was, what's going to happen with Apple now that this genius leader is gone? Has he been able to transfer enough of his DNA and thinking to other board members and, and, uh, and chief officers? Do they get Steve well enough to go and continue on Steve's mission? Now, what if somehow, miraculously, magically, or whatever, Steve Jobs was actually able to put his spirit in every employee of Apple? So they wouldn't be left guessing, like, what would Steve do? WWSD? <laughs> like, Steve's spirit would be in them. That would be amazing, right? Like, that would be the best possible scenario for Apple if they wanted to continue on Steve's mission in the world. Now, obviously, he couldn't and didn't do that. Jesus could and did. So he doesn't just invite us to live WWJD lives as if it's a theory. He actually says the same spirit that empowered me to obey the Father and to love my neighbors, I'm now giving you that spirit as well. God now lives in us and empowers us to continue on in his mission in the world. One of the metaphors that's used most frequently in the New Testament to describe the church, the community of Jesus followers, is that of the body. We are called the body of Christ. And lots of times when we talk about the body metaphor, and there is one place where Paul uses it this way, it's the idea that there's all different parts to the body of Christ, right? That some are mouths and some are eyes and some are hands and some are feet. And so we don't have to be jealous of the guy who can play guitar because we have our own gift. We're our own part of the body, right? So there is something to that. For us to learn how to live out our identity as the body of Christ, it's understanding we need each other, we're different, and there's beauty in that diversity. But even bigger picture, if you step back and ask what is the significance of the fact that we are called the body of Christ, it's simply the same thing that we're talking about. That, that just as Jesus was the image of the invisible God, he now has given us his spirit and passed his mission on to us so that we now get to embody his presence in the world. Jesus is not bodily present in the world anymore. He ascended, right, after this, this chapter in John 20. But he doesn't leave the world without his body. Instead of being a single human, his body is now made up of people. Billions of people across the world now. We are the body of Christ. We now get to bear the image of the invisible. It's an incredible metaphor. There's this movie, it's on Netflix, I don't know where else it 
you can find it, but it's called The Diving Bell and the Butterflies. Anybody seen that? It's kind of a weird, indie, artsy, I think it's a French film, and it's this crazy story about this guy who, uh, he's essentially the editor of like a Vogue magazine, right? So a cultural influencer, and he's a guy who's, who's shaping culture at a large level, and he's, he's just brilliant and creative and successful. And it's the true story of this, this dude, and he gets this thing called locked-in syndrome, which I hadn't heard of before. But his, essentially, his whole body shuts down, but his mind is still fully intact. And it's a horrifying movie in that sense, right? Can you imagine having your mind fully functioning, being able to see and to hear and to understand and to think, but not having any way to express it, to speak or to move at all? It's horrifying. And what's crazy is in the story, he actually eventually gets to a place where he can blink. And he ends up writing an entire book, dictating to an assistant simply by blinking a series of codes. Right? It's a beautiful film, kind of cra- captures the triumph of the human spirit. But as I watched it, what I started thinking about is just how important a body is. Right? We kind of take it for granted. I rarely wake up in the mor- morning and say, God, thank you for my body. Right? I, don't, I don't even really like my body. So, like, I'm not thankful for it. Um, But you can have a brilliant heart and a genuine mind, but without a body, without a way to communicate, to express your heart and mind, you don't have much, do you? And so the reason bodies exist is to manifest in physical form the desires of the heart. Have you ever thought about that? Our bodies are the way we express outwardly the things that we're thinking and feeling and hearing and experiencing inwardly. And so Jesus makes a body for himself, and he calls it the church. And we now get to be the people who embody his spirit. We get to be the place where he resides And we get to be his physical representation in the world to manifest the heart and the mind and even the dreams of God through our shared life. And so, what would it look like to be the church that had the heart of Jesus beating within us? What would it look like to be a community of Christ followers that leaned deeply into the reality that we have been given the same spirit that empowered Jesus? What would it look like for us to follow Jesus on his mission into the world, making the word flesh and living among our friends and neighbors and communities and cities in a way that when they look at us, they get to see who he is? Now, the beautiful thing is that there isn't just one answer to that question. There's not one way that we go out and live missionally. There's not one way to go out and be the body of Christ to bend. There's not one way that we're faithful to this call. The beauty and brilliance of it is that there's billions of ways. 
There's all different possibilities for how you and I can uniquely tap into the power of the Spirit to live out this mission. And all the stuff that God has built into our lives, the stuff that we had something to do with and the stuff that we didn't, where we've come from and what we've experienced and what we've learned and our skills and our gifts and our abilities and our relationships, all of that becomes opportunity for us to live and join God on his mission in the world. And so the tragedy is when the church neglects her mission, when you and I fail to receive this baton from Christ, but we continue to be Christians, we end up wanting to shelter ourselves, wanting to protect ourselves, wanting to fortress around us so that we don't get infected by, by the ways of a sinful world. But that's not how Jesus came to us, is it? He comes among us. He enters into our life, into our communities, into our neighborhood, into a really messed up world. And he says, now I'm calling you as well. You don't have to be me, but you can be with me, you can become like me, and my spirit is now in you. So that you can live among your friends and neighbors and co-workers in such a way that they get to see me in you. In your bulletin, there's a little handout. And uh, would you grab that real quick? If you got one, it says, Servants of All, Missional Living in Our City. And what I want to do, as I told you I would last week, is to try to put some flesh on these words, because that's what we're talking about anyways. I want to try to kind of get our imaginations going a little bit and maybe encourage some of us to take some first steps towards what we might call missional or incarnational, or you could just call Jesus living, okay? Now, I know at Antioch that you're not used to ten steps to this or seven secrets of that, and that's not what this is supposed to be. That's, that's not what I'm about either. I don't think that's how it works. So this isn't ten steps or anything like that. These are simply some ideas for what it might look like for us to begin following Jesus into the places in our lives and our cities where he's needed the most. Okay, so I'm just going to run through these, some real practical things, and uh, hopefully it'll get, get your uh, mind running a little bit. Number one, be a regular somewhere. Restaurants, coffee shops, pubs, gyms, parks, spend time at the same places at the same times, get to know the staff or other patrons, okay? Are we ready to do this? Because I feel like we're really comfortable with ideas right now and really comfortable with theology, and all of a sudden we shifted a gear, and I'm saying, no, we're actually going to go do this. We're actually going to begin to live differently in the city. Okay, so let's get in that mind frame real quick. Like, what would this look like, not just to agree with the Bible, but to actually obey it? Not just to celebrate, yeah, we've been given the Spirit, but to actually claim his power and go out and live a life that would require his power. Okay, so that's what we're talking about. 
So being a regular somewhere, the point is to develop relationships. The point is to intentionally habit, inhabit spaces in our city where people will get to know us and grow to trust us and maybe even love us. And the miracle of the gospel it is as they get to know, trust, and love us, they're getting to know, trust, and love Christ in us. That they would get to see the image of the invisible in us. So it takes time, it takes relationships, it takes exposure over a long period of time. So I'd encourage you to think about where are you already a regular and are you claiming your identity and living on your mission as part of the body of Christ in those spaces? Number two, walk or ride instead of driving. Say hi to people. Take your dog or your kids and strike up conversation. Ben loves dogs, right? If you've got a dog, you've got a leg up as a missionary. As you move more slowly, that's not what I meant. (laughs) Speaking of moving more slowly. (laughs) That's, thank you, thank you. That's going to be hard to recover from. (laughs) As you move more slowly... You'll notice people and things to pray for, get involved in, and serve. Okay, I've found this to be incredibly helpful. It's so easy to hop in your car in the morning, drive to work or wherever you're going, and not even pay attention to the people around you and to the needs that you might see because you're just kind of on this mission to get there. As you're more intentional, moving more slowly, your eyes are open and you start to think differently. Even pray for the people and the things that you see. Number three, and this one might be crazy for some of you, hang out with your coworkers. God's got you at that job for a reason. Carpool, take breaks together, get lunch, invite them to do something after work or on the weekend. All right? Now, for some of you, this sounds terrible, right? Like the last thing you want is any more time with those people. Do you realize that there's a very good chance the reason you have the job you do is so that you can embody the presence of Christ for those people? Your clients, your coworkers, even your bosses and supervisors? Would that change the way you view your job? Of course, this is Ben. Nobody has jobs, right? (laughs) But for those of you that do, for us on the east side who go to work every day, right? (laughs) What if we actually saw our job, both what we're doing and how and why we do it, as an opportunity to advance the mission of God? Number four, join a team, club, or class. Get to know the other players, members, students, or staff. Initiate the after party. Start a team or invite your coworkers and neighbors to play, okay? So for some of us, we are already deeply connected to this city. Some of you guys have lived here for a long time, and it's just kind of the way you're wired. You're one of those extroverted people Ben led us about in the prayer, right? You have lots of friends, neighbors, coworkers, whoever, and, um, and that's great. For others of us, this, the first step is actually getting to know some non-believers, actually immersing ourselves in contexts that may be uncomfortable for us. And so the idea here is that we are stepping out into a space 
where we're going to find ourselves in community, in relationships with people who don't believe what we believe and live how we live. Okay? So you may have to join something expressly for that purpose, which I've done many times. Number five, open up your home. Throw great parties with good food, drinks, music, and conversation. Maybe hold a weekly game, movie, whatever night. Practice simple hospitality. Eat around the table. Okay, it's seeing your home as a place of mission. Seeing your home, your table, as an opportunity to share the life of God. Number six, volunteer with a non- nonprofit. Connect with local groups that are working for social justice, caring for the poor, protecting the environment, feeding the hungry, welcoming I- immigrants, etc. All kinds of opportunities in Bend. And in fact, next week, as we wrap up this series, we're going to be specifically focusing on what does it look like to be the body of Christ among the least of these in our city. And so we'll dive more deeply into that. But for now, it's simply the idea that volunteerism is actually kind of a hot thing culturally, right? And so it's a common ground where we as followers of Jesus can share space with those who don't know him and work towards the common good together and get to know people in the process. Number seven, participate in cultural events. Attend local concerts, festivals, sporting events, fairs, art exhibits, and other cultural celebrations. Become a student of the city's culture. Don't just consume culture. Process it thoughtfully and prayerfully. It's basically just saying we want to be the best Bendites there are. We want to be the people that, that really care about this city, that really get it, that are really deeply connected and involved in whatever sphere, socially or culturally, we find ourselves, that we are working together towards the common good. The, the deal that God has always had with his people from the very beginning is that he would bless us so that we would be a blessing, right? We are blessed to be a blessing. So Israel was called to embody foreign lands in a way that would be good news to those lands. They were called to live amongst those who didn't worship Yahweh in a way that even if those foreign foreigners didn't believe what they believed, they'd still be glad they were there. If we're blessed to be a blessing, like if, if you had an Israelite neighbor, you were stoked, Right? Because if he had a hot tub, you had a hot tub. (laughs) If he had a jet ski, you have a jet ski. Because he sees whatever he has, not just for his own comfort and pleasure, but as a way to bless and love others. And that's the same thing we're talking about here. Whatever spaces that we find ourselves occupying culturally or socially, that we would see ourselves as servants, as contributors, as blessers. Number eight, love your neighbors. Who's my neighbor? Your neighbor is your neighbor. If you don't know them, you probably don't love them. Who else lives in your neighborhood? Keep an eye out for ways you can serve them. Okay, when, when this question was posed to Jesus, he goes into the story of the Good Samaritan, right? And I know that Jesus meant more than your literal neighbors when he says love your neighbors, but he doesn't mean less. We are called to love our neighbors. So before we try to figure out who that means in the grand scheme of things, let's just start with the people who live next door. Jesus calls you to love them. 
And if you don't know them, then you don't love them. This weekend is an incredible opportunity that we have teed up for us to get to know some of your neighbors. Right? So in our cul-de-sac, we're hosting a 4th of July party for our entire neighborhood. And what that looks like for us is moving the barbecue from the back deck to the front porch and extending hospitality to all, all the people in our neighborhood and creating a space for them to come and to celebrate and to have a good time together. So even this, this coming Saturday, as you think about how you're going to celebrate, what if you did it in a way that was intentional to build relationships, to make connections, either with your little neighbors or co- coworkers or other friends? Number nine, you ready for this? Always tip well, especially when the service is bad. You have an opportunity to demonstrate the gospel. God hasn't given us what we deserve, but he's given us grace instead. Now we're talking about your money. This is getting real. For those of you that work in the service industry, as baristas or bartenders or whatever, you know, don't you? (laughs) You notice. Christians have a horrible reputation when it comes to tipping. Everywhere I've traveled around the country, I try to ask the hospitality industry people in hotels, restaurants, wherever, uh, what they think when the Christian conference comes to town. It's not good news. We're terrible tippers. Do you know why? It's because we're self-righteous legalists. That sounds pretty harsh, doesn't it? I think it's true. I think we don't actually really believe the gospel that we're saved by grace and not by good works. I think we believe that we deserve God's favor and that he likes us so much because we've been so good and so he tips us eternal life for our good works. But the gospel is that we have nothing good to bring before God. That if you want to talk about what we deserve, the wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve, hell and eternal separation from God. But he doesn't deal with us on the basis of what we deserve, does he? He gives us what we need. He gives us grace. He pours himself into undeserving people. And every single time you order your Americano, or sit down for dinner, or whatever you do, you have an opportunity to practice that gospel in an incredibly tangible way. And especially if the service is bad, the gospel is even louder. It's going to cost you something. And so what I do is, if I don't have that much money to spend on a meal or whatever, I order something cheaper so that I can tip more. Always tip well. And finally, serve the poor. Treat those in need with love and dignity. Care for orphans, widows, the elderly, and the sick. Don't just do stuff for them. Do stuff with them. I can't tell you the ways that my life has changed when I find myself in meaningful friendships with those that the Bible would talk about as the least of these. 
not just doing charity, but actually extending community, hospitality, love, and relationship to the homeless, to the addicted, to the abused, to the abandoned, whoever it is. It's incredibly messy and incredibly hard. But when you can make that shift from just volunteering and doing stuff for and doing stuff with, once again, you're reenacting the gospel story that Christ comes and lives amongst us. We'll close back in John 20. What you'll notice is that as Jesus extends this mission to his disciples, it happens in the context of this moment where he's showing them his hands and his side and saying, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. What's he saying? You're going to have to be willing to die. Jesus' mission cost him his life. And he says, this is going to cost you your life as well. This isn't going to be that comfortable. This isn't going to be that easy. I know you would rather not. But Jesus says, I'm sending you out the same way I've been sent. And it's going to cost you deeply. Now the reality is for followers of Jesus throughout history and around the world today, these words have a very literal meaning, don't they? There are places all around the world where following Jesus faithfully literally will cost you your life. And that's not going anywhere. That's going to become more and more common. For us as Americans in the the meantime, we probably won't be executed for our faith. But we're going to have to die to all the gods that we've put up in the place of Jesus. Of comfort, pleasure, success. All the things that we look to to give our life meaning. Jesus is saying, you're going to need to be willing to kill all of that. Have it killed and come and follow me. So the truth is, it is going to cost us something to live on mission, to follow Jesus in this city, but it's not going to cost us anything compared to what it cost Christ. This is an incredible gift we've been given, that we would get to be his people, his body, his church, his followers in his world. And in order to make that happen, it cost him his very life. And so my hope, my dream, my prayer is that we as Antioch would receive the mission of Jesus as a gift of grace. That we would count ourselves blessed to be among those who've been brought into the light of God, who've received the life of God, who've experienced the love of God. And that we would find ourselves in prayerful dependence upon the Holy Spirit 
as we go out with Jesus, like Jesus, among those Jesus would be with. Father, we are so incredibly thankful that your word has become flesh, that you haven't just told us that you've loved us, but you have shown us your love in the most amazing way. And we are so thankful that we get to be part of your family, part of your body, your bride, that we get to be the recipients of your good grace. But I pray, Father, that it wouldn't stop there for us. I pray that when you look upon this church community, Antioch in Bend, Oregon, that you would see a community who is willing to see our blessings as a way to bless the world around us. That you would find a church that receives grace and extends it, that receives forgiveness and forgives others, that receives your love and loves our neighbors. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would convict us of our sin, our selfishness, our self-righteousness, our addiction to self and to comfort and to pleasure, and instead that you would free us up for this wonderful life of giving ourselves away for the healing of the world. So I pray that you would find in us Lord Jesus, a suitable body to represent you to the world. Not as perfect people, but as forgiven, loved, sanctified sinners. You are the good news. We trust in you alone. Amen.